Uh, take your Bibles and, well, actually, you're probably there, right? Are you on Ephesians 4 still? I had Paul read that text so that, uh, well, first of all, it's a fantastic text, and I like his sort of James Earl Jones kind of vibe he's got going when he reads. And uh, so I wanted him to read it, and then also so I would not have to read it um, out loud as well. But um, that is the text that we're going to be looking at today, Ephesians 4, 17 through 32. It's a, it's a big text, so I don't want to sit up here and talk about my sniffles or anything any longer. Uh, three weeks ago, we looked at how Christ has given, when we were in Ephesians, we, we looked at how Christ has given spiritual gifts to believers for the purpose of building up the body of Christ, which is the church. That's what we focused on three weeks ago. I took a couple of week break, and I thank you for that. It was nice and refreshing. But that's where we were. Uh, And we learned that when believers join together and use their spiritual gifts and even their natural gifts or talents in service to one another, the body of Christ begins to grow, mature, and experience greater unity and peace. That's what we focused on three weeks ago. In the rest of chapter 4, Paul makes a contrast between unbelievers and believers. In verses 17 through 22, he warns the Ephesians not to live like the unbelieving people around them. He basically exhorts, encourages them to put off the old self. And then he points to four things that characterize unbelievers or the people around them. And then in verses 23 through 32, he exhorts the Ephesians to do the opposite, to put on the new self, to live in the likeness of God, to be like Christ. And then he points to four character traits of the new self. So that's where we're going. And I think that that, uh, this subject matter, again, does promote unity and all that. Uh, And that seems to be kind of the meta-narrative of this chapter. But I think that more than anything, it's so apropos for us living in a culture like we do and and being believers and and having a lot of, you know, unbelievers around us. And, And so we need to identify how they live and make sure that we're not living the same way that they are. And that's really kind of the thrust of this text. And so... Uh, I think uh, it's going to be good and perfect timing, right, for the turn of the year when people are, you know, setting objectives, you know, for the next year or for the year that just began and all that. What do we call those things again? Resolutions. Yeah, right. Um, I didn't make any because for me, they're just made to be broken. I don't I take vows very seriously, but that doesn't mean that I'm not going to, you know, try to live out what we're about to study. And so this is perfect timing for us to look at this subject matter. Uh, We've already read our main text. Let's pray one more time and then we'll get to work. And Father in heaven, we we ask for you to send the Holy Spirit in power that he will open our ears and our eyes and our hearts to the truth, that we would be changed by it, that we would be encouraged by it, that we would be challenged and corrected by it, And that um, uh, for those of us that are in Christ, we we know that the purpose here is to build us up and to make us like Christ more and more. And if we're not in Christ, maybe the purpose of this text is to lead us to Christ. Maybe to lead us to the end of ourselves, that we might realize some things today about ourselves, that, that we're hopelessly lost, and that Christ is our only remedy, solution, Savior. And so we pray, Father, for the Holy Spirit to be active empower in this service. Speak to us, change us, and may you receive all the glory, honor, and praise that's due your holy name. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so let's begin at 17a. Verse 17a, it says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Again, he's been describing who the Ephesians are. He's been describing their gifts and how they're to interact and serve one another. And now he he makes this bold, almost eye-opening, slap-on-the-face sort of statement. Man, don't 
live like those around you. This is where he's going here. Now this I say, that particular statement does refer back to what Paul has been saying about our high calling in Jesus Christ. Because we are called to salvation, unified in the body of Christ, gifted by the Holy Spirit, and built up by the evangelists and shepherds, remember those gifted men we read about, and even one another to a degree, we should therefore no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Gentiles is an interesting phrase. It's ethnos, or ethnos, if you will, in Greek. And it's really just a generic term for people. Uh, It's just a generic term for people. I know Gentile typically means non-Jew. That's what we think of when we think of Gentile. You have Jew and you have Gentile. You have Jewish person, non-Jewish person. So that's what we typically think of. But here, it's much more ethnos, or ethnos is much more generic than that. But it does denote unbelievers, denotes those who are apart from Christ, who do not know Jesus Christ. And, and there's other terms in the scripture that refer to people like this, and, and, and they, maybe they sound a lot more negative, like pagan or heathen. Those are generic terms to describe unbelievers as well. I typically don't use them because I don't think people know what they mean. And so when I say, hey, you're a pagan, you know, you might get a punch in the chops. But basically, Gentiles here is a generic term for unbeliever, lost people, non-Christian, pagan, heathen. So that's what he's saying here. Uh, Paul is saying that we cannot, as believers, as Christians, we cannot accomplish the glorious work of Christ by continuing to live the way the world lives. We can't live out all that he has said in Ephesians 1, 2, 3, and part of 4. We can't be those people. We can't accomplish those goals that Christ has for us. We can't serve one another rightly. We can't glorify him, evangelize, spread the gospel. We can't do what we're called to do rightly in any sense if we're still living like and acting like the people around us, the Gentiles, pagans, heathen, those who do not know Christ. We cannot do it. Then we see the phrase, testify in the Lord. Now, what does that do? That adds weight to Paul's warning here, because that's essentially what Paul is doing. He's warning this church. He's warning the Ephesian church. He's warning all the churches that read this letter. He's warning RHC. And then he adds, testify in the Lord. That adds a ton of weight to the warning. It's as if Paul said, I call the Lord as my witness. I testify on his behalf. I'm saying to you what he has said to me about you. These are the words of Jesus, basically. I call the Lord as my witness. I say these things on his behalf. What? That you must no longer walk as the pagans, as the heathen, as Gentile unbelievers do, those around you. Stop. Don't do it, is what he's saying. And then in verses 17b through 19, he describes four things that characterize unbelievers. It's not that he just says, don't live like them. He's going to give some examples. Don't do these things. And that's exactly what he's going to say. He's saying, don't live like unbelievers or bear the following ungodly characteristics. Now let's look at each of them. Number one, unbelievers are intellectually futile. And that's verse 17b, in the futility of their minds. That's how he puts it. To be intellectually futile or futile in the mind means to have a mind that is spiritually profitless. A futile mind is a mind that is devoid of true spirituality and true knowledge which is the knowledge of God in Christ Jesus. Ultimately, a futile mind possesses knowledge, because we certainly can't say that unbelievers don't have knowledge. A futile mind possesses knowledge. It possesses understanding. It it possesses an inkling, if you will, of wisdom. But because it's futile, it leads to nowhere. Because that's what futility means. Profitless. It leads nowhere. It has no value. 
And that's a pretty incredible statement that Paul's making here because I can think of a lot of scientists and people that are making a lot of contributions that don't love Jesus and and they're very brilliant and all that, but we're talking about spiritual matters here. We're not talking about mathematicians. We're not talking about science. We're not talking about those. A futile mind is a mind that does not know and understand Christ. And ultimately, no matter how brilliant a person is, if they do not know Christ, if they are not in Christ, Whatever contribution they make, whatever it is that they do, really is futile in the end, no matter how brilliant, no matter how helpful, because all things will be consumed. The world is going to be made new. A futile mind possesses knowledge and understanding that basically leads to nowhere. A futile mind, and this is so sad, a futile mind is a pointless mind. It's a pointless mind. Um, any one of you can probably testify, if you're a Christian, you hear unbelievers talk all the times about things, and you, you realize how profitless the things that they usually focus on and talk about are, you know, more money, more possessions, more things, and it's just all fun and games here while you're on earth, but it has no eternal significance. And there's a million other examples MacArthur wrote this, he said, an unbeliever plans and resolves everything on the basis of his own thinking. He becomes his own ultimate authority and he follows his own thinking to its ultimate outcome of what? Futility, aimlessness, and meaninglessness to the self-centered emptiness that characterizes our age. That's a very, very good statement based on that text. Now, the opposite, however, is true of the believer, His mind, her mind, has been renewed by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. He or she bases his or her thinking, life, and plans on the truth. And Christ, right, this is all opposite for the believer, and Christ has become his or her ultimate authority, and his or her, uh, he or she is to follow their shepherd, their shepherd king, their savior, and aim to glorify him in all that he or she does. The mind of a believer, because it's been spiritually renewed by the Holy Spirit and by the Word of God, is not futile. It's fruitful. Huge difference. And I love the fact that God gauges things in spiritual terms, not in physical. And so we're talking about spiritual things. Where is the true value at? It's in the spiritual. It's in knowing Christ and knowing God and being led by the Holy Spirit, and filled by the Holy Spirit, and leading a godly life, and pursuing Christ. That is what God ultimately values, and that is how he will judge the world. Who is doing that, and who is not doing that? And he knows exactly who is and who isn't. So unbelievers are intellectually futile. It's quite the opposite for the believer. He's, or she is fruitful, not futile. Number two, unbelievers are ignorant of God's truth. That's verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Ignorance of God's truth or being darkened in understanding results from what? A futile mind. right? A futile mind, a pointless mind, an unregenerate mind, it is based on and produces ignorance. A futile mind is ignorant and darkened, and it produces also, it leads to something else that's mentioned in this text at the end of it, a hardened heart. A hardened heart. A hardened heart is a heart that is unresponsive to the truth and pretty much, I would say, impenetrable. Cannot be penetrated by the truth. Now, here is the order, okay, so far. A futile mind is ignorant and darkened, and it produces a hardened heart, which leads to what in the text do we see there? Alienation from the life of God. That's the progression. Now, we must all understand something, and I think there's great confusion about this subject in the church today, maybe in the world, but sin literally begins in the mind. Everyone tends to think that sin is a heart issue and all that, and it really is in in some sense, but, but its origin is in the mind. It, 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 it's in the mind before it's in the heart. And what is the heart? The heart is the center of who a person is. It's what they value, like, appreciate, want, pursue, desire, all of those sorts of things. It begins in the mind. Now, that's where sin's origin is. That's where it starts. 
This is why transformation must begin with the mind, not the heart. Christianity is cognitive before it is experiential. It is our thinking that makes us consider the gospel and our thinking that causes us to believe the historic facts and spiritual truths of the gospel and to receive Christ as Lord and Savior. This is why the first step is repentance. What did Jesus preach? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent means change your mind. Think differently. So you see, sin originates here, and it must be dealt with in the mind first. Repentance has to do with changing one's mind, uh, one, one's mind about himself, herself, about one's spiritual condition, thinking and pondering those things, and thinking and pondering God, all of that. So transformation begins in the mind, and then it flows to the will, because the will resides in the mind, and the will is pretty much what you want, and what you pursue, what you desire, what you like. And then from, from the mind, it kind of goes to the will, and then it kind of makes its way into the heart, the center of who we are. Now, ignorance, or unbelievers are ignorant of God's truth, because their minds are still given to futility and darkness. And because of that, their wills are corrupt. They can't make any, they can't incline themselves to God on their own. They need supernatural help. And because of that, their hearts are hardened in really in two ways. They're hardened against the truth. When the truth, when the gospel is preached, they reject that. And they're also hardened in their hearts against sin and its toxicity and results and all. They don't think of sin as sin. Sin isn't a bad thing to them. Believers, on the other hand, have been illuminated because their minds have been renewed by the Holy Spirit and by the Word of God. We have also been given new hearts, which are hearts of flesh, which means that they are soft and pliable and responsive to the truth. This is all the work of God and the Word of God. We are no longer alienated from the life of God because of the supernatural work. We are, on the other hand, we have been reconciled, we have been adopted, we have been made members of God's household. All of these things that we've learned in Ephesians. We have become His temple, His what? Dwelling place. Complete opposite. Number three, unbelievers are morally calloused. Verse 19a, he just simply says, become callous. They have become callous. Callous is apogeo. And it means to lose feeling of shame. That's what it means. We might even get the word apology from it. I don't know. But it, it, I didn't really research that, so don't quote me on that. But it kind of makes sense if you think in terms of unbelievers really don't make any apology for their sin. They're calloused. The idea here is that unbelievers are unashamed by their sin because they have become calloused, or as Paul put it in verse 18, Hardened in heart, calloused and hardened in heart can be the same thing. When people continue in sin and turn themselves away from the life of God, from the gospel, they become apathetic and insensitive about moral and spiritual things. They reject all standards of righteousness and do not care about the consequences of their unrighteous thoughts and actions. And we need to be very, very careful as believers. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer, you need to be very careful not to become recalloused. You can actually be, have a new heart and a new mind and all of this stuff and be pursuing Christ with all your might and all your love and heart and all these wonderful things and living the Christian life and start getting wrapped up in sin and start, you can become desensitized to it and calloused, if you will, even to the point where you're not even sure if you're saved and your brothers and sisters in Christ around you wonder the same thing. Well, I certainly thought they were a believer. I don't know what happened. They gave in to this sin, and they kind of stayed on that trajectory and never turned from it, and now look at them. They live as if they're completely lost and, and hopeless, and, and maybe they were never saved to begin with. That's what we always say. Maybe they were never regenerated and saved to begin with. It's a, it's a very frightening kind of experience, and maybe you've encountered that with somebody, or maybe you've walked that road yourself and by the grace of God come back. 
And I would say this is one of the reasons why we need to take sin so seriously. I don't think that believers today, and, and even me in some ways, I just don't take it seriously enough. I take what I perceive to be or think of as really bad sins, I take those really, really seriously. But the little stuff I don't really pay much attention to. Fortunately for me, this whole text here addresses just about every form of sin. So while I was studying this, I was like, ah, can't get away with that anymore. Dang it. What do you mean I can't cuss? Because I tend to do that at times. Sometimes I don't, I don't have control over my tongue. We're going to get to all that. There's just no leeway in this text for any of it. Now, there's also good news, too, though, that we need to understand, and that's that backsliding won't cause us to lose our salvation. It won't. Uh, believe me, I'm not trying to encourage backsliding, but there's a whole great vast multitude of people who claim to be Christian and think that if they start sinning and mess up that they can lose their salvation and they'd be eternally damned. Well, that's not at all what Scripture teaches. Backsliding won't cause us to lose our salvation, but I'll tell you what it will cause. It will cause us to lose our sense of direction. It will cause us to lose our joy. And it will cause God, who is a merciful and gracious Father, to get His rod out and to do a little housekeeping uh, and a little disciplinary work. He'll do what he has to do. And I think equally, as I said, it, we get engaged in the, all these sins and all that, it causes others to really wonder what's going on and whether we're saved or not and all of that. And that's happened. That's, we've been at church for four years, and that's happened a number of times with people whom we love dearly here, and we're wondering, what happened? What is going on? I don't know about you, but I spent all of December praying for certain people. It's terrible. Four, unbelievers are depraved in mind. Verse 19b, given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. A futile, ignorant, and darkened mind leads to a depraved mind, which is a mind that is given to carnality, given over to perversion, given over to lust, given over to hedonism, given over to sinful pleasure. That's what a depraved mind is. It's given over to those things. Sensuality here can also be translated as licentiousness, which is an interesting word that you never hear anymore. Licentiousness is a lack of moral restraint, especially in the area of sexuality. Licentiousness. Now, all people initially recognize at least some standard of right and wrong and have a certain sense of shame when they act against that standard. Consequently, they usually try to hide their wrongdoing. Right? That's how people typically deal with it. They don't own up to anything. It's like, well, it was him. Adam in the garden, it was the woman you gave me. The woman in the garden, it was the snake. We don't want to own our stuff. We don't want to own our junk. We hide. We try to deny it. And people may continually fall back into some kind of sin or some kind of sensual behavior and still recognize that it is wrong as something they should not be doing and conscience will usually, in some cases, not let them remain comfortable about it. But as they continue to overrule conscience and train themselves to do evil and ignore guilt, they eventually reject those standards, those moral standards, and determine to live solely by their own desires, thereby revealing an already seared conscience or a callous heart. Having rejected all divine guidelines and protection, they become depraved in mind and give themselves over to what? Sensuality. Such a person cares nothing about what other people think. They just don't. Not to mention about what God thinks. What they care about is what gratifies the cravings of their own warped mind their own warped will, their own warped and dead heart. Notice how Paul wrote, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. You see that there? 
The word greedy is usually employed to describe a person's strong desire to acquire more and more material possessions, right? But in our text, Paul applies it to sensuality, to impurity. The idea here is that the depraved in heart or mind person has a strong desire to engage in more and more and even varying styles of sensual encounters. The depraved person is pretty much ruled by lust and a burning desire for carnal, fleshly pleasure. And he or she will put forth great effort to engage in those things. It's what they want. Notice the phrase, every kind. Right? Greedy to practice every kind. Paul did not limit the scope here to just sensuality. Oh, he's got, he's got every, I would think he doesn't have every single version of that in his mind at this point, but he's thinking more in general terms here. This is a broad spectrum of impurity that he has in mind here. It's kind of an all-inclusive sort of comment or statement there. Well, it can have to do with the greed of money. It can have to do with the greed of power. It can have to do with the greed of popularity, with, with prestige, with, with control. In other things, I'd say in all other things, that the depraved mind desires and pursues in an effort to satisfy or gratify in a temporary sense their flesh. I, I will just be transparent for a moment and say that those four characteristics described me perfectly before I got saved. Oh, well, now you're perfect, Pastor Phil, and you never wrestle with those things? No. But that's who I was. It's who you were before you were saved. It might be who you are today. And are there varying levels? And, and you know, some people are much worse at the sensual thing, and that's all they care about. And then there's others that are, you know, just kind of about that, but not fully. In, yes, there's variations. There's 31 flavors. Now look at Paul's admonition, which is basically a type of warning or correction in verses 20 to 21. He says, but that is not the way you learned Christ! Exclamation point. And he says in 21, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. See, a life that is characterized by the things we've looked at so far is not a life that is characterized by the teachings of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. I, I think verse 21 is pretty alarming. If members in the Ephesian church were still characterized by the above things, the things that I've mentioned, Paul assumed that they had yet to be converted and taught in Christ. He says, assuming that you have heard, well, if these things, if you're about these things and this is the way you live your life and these are the things that you value... He's assuming that they haven't heard of Jesus Christ or been taught in Him. I'm telling you, the, the four things that we've talked about, that's how incompatible they are with true salvation. They're the opposite. They're the antithesis. And the thing that's, that's a little frightening here is that what, what we see is that Paul was unwilling he was completely unwilling in verse 21 to attribute these godless traits and behaviors to something else like spiritual immaturity, some other Christian phenomenon, because that's what we do. Well, he's just immature in the faith, and that's why he still has a carnal mind and, you know, and sleeps with everyone he can. And all. Paul is giving no leeway here. It's like, look, if this is who you are, I am assuming... I have to assume that you've heard of Jesus Christ and that you've been taught in Him because if that's who you are, it certainly doesn't sound like it because that's how contradictory these things are to the true life in Christ. 
And I think we need to be real careful here as believers because what we tend to do is we, we, you know, we evaluate, we're doing life with people and we evaluate their behavior. We see the trends. We see what they're doing. They're engaging in the sins and these sorts of things. And what we immediately assume is that they're just really immature or just, you know, they're a, the fancy term years ago was they're a carnal Christian. No such thing. They're a carnal Christian or they're just really immature and all that. I think we need to sort of get away from that mentality and that kind of evaluation and start to assume like Paul did here that maybe they really have never heard of Christ in the right way. Maybe they've never really been taught in Christ. Maybe they've never been converted, regenerated, made new by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Because what we do is we play footsie. Well, they're just immature and maybe they'll grow up. Paul doesn't give any room for any of that kind of action here. He basically assumes that they, if this is how you're living, you, you obviously do not know Christ. And you have not been, maybe, 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 he's not saying this, I am, maybe you've just come to know Christ and you haven't turned from all of that stuff yet. Maybe you haven't been taught rightly in him, because I can tell you one thing churches aren't doing, and they ain't teaching rightly about Christ today. It's instead three ways to have a better marriage. And in the end, you have a crappy marriage because you don't know Christ and you don't understand the gospel. Because when you understand the gospel and begin to be impacted and transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you can have a good marriage. We need to flip it. Life that is characterized by these things is is not a life that has been taught in Jesus Christ, whom the truth is in. If your mind is futile and fixed on the world, if you are ignorant of God and the things of God, if you are darkened in your understanding, if your heart is hardened to the truth and calloused to sin, it doesn't bother you. If your mind is depraved and you are greedy to satisfy your flesh with impurity, you're not an immature believer who needs to grow in Christ and be taught in Him. You are Ephesians 2.1. You are dead in the trespasses and sins you walk in. You are Ephesians 4.18. We just read it. You are alienated from the life of God. And you need, you need the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's God's provision to rescue you out of a futile mind and darkness and these behaviors and these things. Doesn't mean that you won't struggle with those things from time to time, but you will be delivered from them. And guess what? You will not be identified by them any longer. You'll just be a Christian, not a gay Christian, not a carnal Christian. I just hate the fact that we add, you know, a little surtitle, a little kicker to, I'm this Christian, I'm that Christian. And what we're doing is we're making exceptions for our sin, proving that we have yet to be regenerated. There's no compatibility here. You need the gospel of Jesus Christ, friend. You need to be delivered by Christ, who is the only deliverer, the only one. Only he can save you and rescue you out of that mindset, out of that way of life, and deliver you and give you hope and peace and joy and an eternity with him and the fellowship of the church and all of these wonderful things, the abundant joy that he provides. It's only in him. What does it mean to be taught in him? That's what Paul said. Or better yet, what does Christ teach us to do? Look at verses 22 through 24. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Christ teaches us to put off our old self, our old man, our old woman, our old way of life, and to become renewed in the spirit of our minds by the word of God, and to put on the new self, which is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is an antithetical statement. He's described what an unbeliever is, and here's what we're to do as believers. Here's who we are. Now, a good question comes to mind here. How do we put on, or how do we actually put off our old self? Well, first of all, you're not going to put off anything if you haven't surrendered to Jesus Christ, if you don't have the Holy Spirit. There's no putting off nothing. 
There's just repetition. So the first thing you have to do is yield to Jesus Christ. Recognize that you're a sinner, that you're lost, that you're depraved, all of these things, and surrender yourself to Jesus Christ. Believe in Him by faith. Trust in Him as your Lord and Savior. That's what you've got to do. And turn away from the life. That'd be the first thing you've got to do. That's how you begin to, to do it. And then Jesus also said this. That'd be the first step. Jesus said this. Deny yourself and take up your cross. Deny yourself and take up your cross. That's something that Jesus taught. We put off our old self, our old way of life, by putting to death our fleshly desires. We flee from temptation. We resist the devil. We present our bodies as living sacrifices to our God daily. This is, this is how you put off the old self, right? When temptation comes, you flee from it. When you're tempted to engage in some sort of sin that you've done your whole life, you turn away from it and avoid it. You sacrifice it on the altar to God. This is a moment-by-moment moment thing here, friends. This isn't like, well, I surrendered my life to Christ, and, and I put on the new self, and now I'm the new self, and I can just kind of live and do what I think. You've got to basically suit up every day. Every morning, you've got to commit yourself to Christ and, and say, I'm putting on the new self, this Lord. I'm going to walk in righteousness and holiness. Protect me, guide me, lead me, convict me. Give me opportunities to preach the gospel, to share the gospel. Convict me when, 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 when I do sin and, and when temptation comes. Give me, give me a way out because you promised to. Putting on the new self is fleeing from temptation and putting to death fleshly desires. Sinclair Ferguson put it really well. He said, it is the task of the Christian to put to death the fleshly desires of our bodies. And it's what we're to do. Now in verses 25 through 29, Paul identifies four character traits of the new self. He basically contrasts verses 25 through 29 with 17b through 19, right? Here's, here's the new self, right? In 25 through 29, here's the old self in 17b through 19. And when we exhibit the following traits, these new self traits, we are living in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We are, as we learned earlier in previous uh, text, we are walking in a manner worthy of our calling when we bear these traits. I would say, very simply put, we are behaving like believers. Look at them with me. Yeah, I can spend a whole lot of time on each one. Number one is truthfulness. Verse 25, therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. This is amazing. Because what comes to mind here is that, you know, unbelievers typically are liars. We lie about our sin. We lie about all these things. And then when we pass from death to life, we become a truthful person, a truth teller. And it doesn't mean that we don't lie on occasion to do these things, but the basic idea is that the unbeliever is filled with untruth and lies. He's darkened to the truth, and he lies about everything. I, I know that. I was a big, big, big time fibber before I got saved, and I have to say occasionally I wrestle with that, but not like I did. I would say that my whole life was like a lie. When I went in for a job interview somewhere, I would make myself look like, I would say Donald Trump, but after he's been running his political campaign, I will never say that. Um, I would just make myself look really, really good. Like, you know, I can do that with my hands behind my back. You can cut my legs off and I can do it with my teeth. Well, you're our guy. They'd be like, this guy's an idiot. I, I would just lie about everything, especially to my wife. When it comes to spending money, I don't know how you hide a boat. I don't know how that got in the garage. Somebody must have planted it. Did you buy it? No. Okay. I mean, before Christ, she was a knucklehead. She just didn't get it. I lied about everything. Little things, big things, you know. 
I, I like it. It's like, okay, the unbeliever doesn't have truthfulness. He's a liar. She's a liar. And, and lying doesn't have to be just like when, when you're cornered and you think you have to come up with something. Lying can be just embellishment. It can be just making up stories so that people will think you're cool. You know? You ever watch Brian Regan? He's, he's just a hilarious comedian. And, you know, he does this little skit where he's telling the story of his wisdom teeth getting pulled out. And some guy swoops in, yes, but I had six of them pulled out and they were like tusks growing out of my mouth. And, you know, we, we tend to, right, we tend to come in and like, well, he's telling a really good story. Wait till I unleash mine. Come to find out what you're saying isn't even true. Never even happened to you. It was in a movie. And then somebody says, that was in a movie. And you say, well, they, they got, I wrote the screenplay. It doesn't have to be just trying to get yourself out of trouble or cover up some kind of sin or stupid, stupidity. It can be anything. And the idea here is that, you know, the, the old self is a liar. The new self is truthful. Not only is this person, this believer, truthful, they put away with falsehood. They don't like it. They don't desire it. They don't want anything to do with it. They're even interested in exposing it in others in a loving way, I would say, and that they will also speak the truth to others. I'm not going to lie to people. Second, anger without sin. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Anger without sin has to do with righteous indignation. It has to do with getting angry over the things that anger God. Jesus got really blown out when he came into the temple and found out that, you know, the people, his people, the Jewish people, had turned it into a strip mall. We're selling all kinds of dumb stuff in there ripping people off. He got infuriated, grabbed some stuff and made a whip out of it and whipped butts right out of that place. And some would say, look, he got angry and he sinned because that's, that's intolerance. That was righteous indignation. This place shall be called a house of prayer, not a, not a den of thieves, a den of robbers. You see, it's okay to get angry over the things that anger God, but I would say you need to be careful because even righteous indignation can give way to bitterness. That's why he says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. He's saying that after he's telling us what kind of anger we can actually exhibit, and that's being angry over the things of God. He's saying, don't even go to bed ticked off for God's, uh, on God's behalf because it what? may provide the devil with some kind of a foothold. And if the devil can begin to inject some bitterness, and then even righteous indignation can become a bad thing. But I would say, in this day and age, I don't think believers get angry over the things that upset God. Enough. All the blasphemies and all these things, and it's just like, I don't know, maybe we've just gotten impervious to it, but... I think it should ups these things should upset us, but we shouldn't dwell on them. Three, hard work and generosity. Oh, and just really quickly, number two again, anger without sin. Just think of how unbelievers are. They're just angry over everything. Doesn't have anything to do with God's righteousness. Just angry over everything. Self-defensive and all these things. Ticked off all the time. You know? I used to walk around with a chip on my shoulder. Wasn't a very big chip. I weighed like a buck fifteen in high school. Somebody could have turned me into a paper airplane. A few guys did. But I tell you, I was the meanest Chihuahua at Davis High. You know, you know? That's what I used to do. Just such anger. I was filled with so much anger. And there's so much anger in the world. But now let's get to three hard work and generosity. Verse 28 Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. I love that text. The old self is a thief. The new self is hardworking and generous. I'm reminded of the book of Philemon, Onesimus. Philemon's servant who basically stole from him and then fled, and then somehow he came in contact with Paul later on, and he got saved and he went from being a thief to a saint. And the whole letter of Philemon has to do with Paul writing to Onesimus and saying, if, uh, or to writing to Philemon about Onesimus and saying, hey, 
Onesimus is going to come back to you, receive him as a dear brother. Basically, he's sorry for what he's done. He's not the same person that he was. I love that contrast. I was a thief. I was filled with anger. I was a liar. And now I'm the opposite of those things. You see the difference between unbeliever and believer. I love how it says to share with anyone in need. It's not just that the the new self person, the person in Christ, is willing to work hard. He or she is also willing to share with those who have a need. There's generosity here. I'm thinking of Zacchaeus, little Danny DeVito in the Bible. Right? The guy's a tax collector. He's the worst of the worst. He's a Jewish tax collector. He's a Jew who collects taxes for Rome. You can't get bad worse than that. And he gets saved. And the next thing you know, he's given away all the riches and wealth and, that he's collected over the years. And he's giving back and paying back and trying to be a blessing to those who don't have. And Jesus says, salvation has come to this man's house today. Not because he gave those things away, but him changing and giving those things away showed that he was a new self in Christ. He exhibited generosity. Four, sanctified speech. That means holy speech. This is the one that's a real challenge. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Wow, man. So, so the old self has to do with being a liar, not telling the truth about being angry, infuriated, defensive over things. It has to do with, with, with being a thief in some regard. I don't know. Broaden that out if you want. And then it has to do with just having a sailor's mouth. Using our mouth in such a way that is completely dishonoring to God. And I, I tell you, I have never in my 46 years of life seen a more profane generation You can't even have a conversation with someone today without 18 F-bombs. And you're like, I was just asking you where the store is. Well, it's... I'm a firm believer that these are replacement words. People lack vocabulary. And so, you know, I don't know the right word to use there. F-bomb sounds good. It's unreal how people speak today. And I, 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 another thing, too, that's alarming about it is that um, I remember when I was a young, you know, heathen, pagan, Gentile lad, and, you know, and yeah, I had a little potty mouth on me. I was all this stuff here, you know, I had a bag of chips. But, you know, if I came in contact with some Christian or a minister, I watched my tongue. I did. I tried to. You'd be like, well, I'm going to go out and S and party and party up. Well, I, I'm a pastor of a big valley. I'm going to go out and, uh, and I'm going to go pray and um, I'm going to get on my knees and pray right now. I'm a moron. Right? You know, that, that was the, how I would respond. You know, well, I'm a pastor. Or I'm a Christian and all that. You know, I didn't, can you, that's what people do today. They don't care. No shame. Calloused. They don't care. They don't care if you love Jesus or any of those. They don't care if, you, if you're part of the church. They don't care if you're, if you're even a straight-edge guy trying to live some kind of a moral life or any of that. People don't care. They don't have any regard for others today. None. None. And I think that's the thing that's most upsetting to me about it is that it's in, in something that, that um, my friend down here, we feel the same way about this, and that's that, that it's the insensitivity to others that really grinds me. I can deal with the profanity, but it's, it's the fact that you don't care about who you're standing in front of when you say these things. You're not mindful of them. You're not courteous to them. To me, that's an injustice, and it makes me want to do karate, but I don't know it. Right? It's, it's just the insensitivity to others. People don't care about how others feel anymore. You see, the new self is about using sanctified speech. It's about avoiding corrupting talk. Okay? That would be profanity, coarse joking, those sorts of things. I get it. The book of James says, who can tame the two-ounce beast that's right there behind your teeth? It's the tongue. No man can. We can't. I mean, the tongue is just, it sets forest fires. It's like a small little rudder on a massive ship that steers the ship. 
The things that we say are very impactful, and it's very, very hard to guard our mouths. But what I'm telling you is the new self wants that. The new self doesn't want lies. It wants truthfulness. The new self doesn't want anger that destroys, that's worthless, that's selfish. It wants to be angry over the things of God. The new self wants to work hard and be generous. It doesn't want to sandbag. It doesn't want to steal. The new self wants to speak in a way that honors God and does what? Gives grace to those who hear. More than anything, it is a disposition of wanting to do those things, more so than how well we practice them. That's one of the number one signs. Do you actually desire to move forward in these things? Because if you do, that could be a sign of true salvation in the Spirit of God. And it could just be that you're a moralist and and you're being impacted by this and you just want to earn your way to heaven, which is never going to happen. And I'm not trying to minimize how much effort we should put forth in doing these things. Our life should be characterized by these traits. Why? Because that's what true salvation does. That's the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of God's Word in our lives. This is what it produces. It produces people who look and speak and act like what he's describing here. What happens when believers act and speak in a sinful way? What happens when we put on the old self? And I, I, I've got a, a, a guy at work who often says, I wish the old Phil were here, because he knew the old Phil. And I keep telling him, dog, that fool's dead. And then once in a while he'll go, I just saw him. <laughs> Think about that. Dang it. He saw him. Where'd he go? He's right there. He constantly, I, I wish the old Phil would come back and, and we could go. And you remember that time you had like 95 beers and you took your truck and you, 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 just, you just made an illegal turn and you roasted those bushes down in Fremont? And that was the most fun I've ever had with you. And I'm like, I cannot believe I didn't go to jail that night. By grace, I suppose. I want the old self back. Where's he at? What happens when we put on the old self? When we say, okay, here's the new, I'm going to put this in the closet, I'm putting on the old flesh suit. What happens? Look at 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What happens when we put on the old self and sin and engage in these things and, and we, 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 we do the opposite of these traits? We do the first set of four. We live like an unbeliever. We act like this. Even for a moment, what happens? We grieve God. If you have children, and many of us do, how does it make you feel when your children sin? How does it make you feel? Well, I celebrate. Never heard a parent say that, no matter how lost they are. It usually grieves them. And it's the same with God our Father. When we sin, when we put on the old self, it grieves Him. Grieve means, in the Greek, to cause pain and to make one sad. When we sin, we basically break God's heart. Even the small sins. Sin also breaks the hearts of others, doesn't it? Destroys marriages and relationships, which hurts children, relatives, and church families. Sin is serious. And as the people of God, we must take it Seriously. I know that I've hurt many, many people because of sin. In fact, if I were to really sit down and and analyze myself, there's probably some out there from my old self-life that I might need to go apologize to. Wouldn't be a bad idea. And I try to keep short accounts now. If I sin, and it does cause harm to someone, I try to own that immediately and make an apology for it. That's one of the best things you could ever do as a believer. Well, what, what, what do I need to do? You know what is so soothing to people that we sin against? Just apologize to them. And some of them, like, you know, have a little Rolodex, and they take it and file it. And later when it happens again, on March 4th, you did, that's what wives usually do, I burned my wife's file system. She doesn't know it yet. She's going to go back for it one of these days, and it's gone. It happens, and we should not hold any grievances or anything either. 
but just apologize for the foolish things that you do. But it does break our hearts when our kids sin, when they hurt themselves, when they hurt others, when they bang another child member over the dome with something. It just, it, it happens. It just, it breaks God's heart. It breaks others' hearts. It breaks our hearts. It destroys relationships. I think uh, and two people, even if they're believers, they're so self-centered and selfish that they can't admit to their sin, even to one another if they're in a relationship, it's going to destroy them. It's, it's, it's been such a long process with my wife and I that I've learned to, to be a, an apologist. Not, not in the defend the faith way, but just own what you do and, and make it right. And my wife is learning to do that too, and you have to do that. I don't know how many times I went to bed steamed over something she did. She'd wake up with no covers. I mean, seriously, right? I froze last night. You should have said you're sorry. <laughs> I'm making a joke of it, but it's really serious. Uh, okay, now listen. We do need to take it seriously. And there is good news that sin will not remove us from the love of God, even if we tend to clothe ourselves in the old a little bit and act foolish or use our mouths in a way that's not honoring to God or do these sorts of things. Again, I'm not making up any excuses for us. I'm saying, run! But when we do, it will not separate us from the love of God, Romans says. Sin will not cause us to lose our salvation. Why? Right there in the text, because we have been sealed for the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit. You've been sealed. No one can unseal you. The only one who can unseal you is the one who sealed you, and that's the Holy Spirit. And the Scripture says He promises to never do that. You can't unseal yourself, but I tell you, take sin seriously and be careful. You can lose your sense of direction. You can lose your joy. You can cause massive damage in your own life, in your family life, in your church. You can, do a, you can screw up big time. And, and, and avoid those things because that can become a thorn in your side the rest of your life, looking back and thinking, gosh, why did I do that? To be haunted by something like that. I am convinced that Scripture is true. God will bring to fruition the good work He began in us no matter what. But we must continue to wage war against temptation, sin, and the devil until He calls us home. Amen? Look at our last verses, 31 and 32. We're almost done. 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with malice. Last verse. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Paul's final exhortation in chapter 4 has to do with how we should treat one another. How this plays out in relationship. In marriage, in church relationship, whatever. In verse 31, he lists six Old self-relationship-destroying behaviors. And in verse 32, he lists three new self-relationship-building behaviors. There's the destroying stuff. There's the building stuff. Let's look at them really quickly and we'll wrap it up. Old self-behaviors, verse 31. Bitterness, wrath, anger. Not the same as the one he already mentioned. This is the selfish anger. This is the self-centered anger, defense anger, that kind of stuff. Clamor. Do you know what clamor is? It's shouting. That's how it translates. You, 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 you. It's the shouting, right? The yelling. Slander. What does that mean? It means attacking someone's character behind their back. We call it smack talks. You know what? Smack talk. Talking about them. Ah, he's this, he's that, she's this, she's that. She's, there's nothing good. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Ah, nothing good comes out of Turlock. Just constantly slamming someone behind their back. Malice. That's just an, an attitude of wanting to cause harm to people. Bitterness. Just getting angry and letting it dwell. Wrath. Just being enraged against people and annihilating them. Anger. Staying in that mode of hatefulness and retaliation and all that. Clamor. Even the shouting. Slander. Talking endless smack about someone. Malice. Wanting their harm. Man, if your marriage is based on those things and you're still married, 
you better surrender to Christ today because He's been merciful to you. Because these things destroy marriages and relationships. Annihilate them. New self behaviors. Verse 32. Kindness. Uh, that is the opposite of wrath, anger. Tenderness. That is the opposite of wrath, anger, clamor, shouting. How do you shout and be tender at the same time? I love you! How does that work? It's the opposite of yelling and screaming. Mercy. Mercy is not, okay, this is how I'm going to get her or him back. That's malice. Mercy is, I'm going to forgive them as Christ forgave me. It's forgiveness. That's what mercy means. Listen, man. If your life and relationships are characterized by bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice, it's not going to make it, I guarantee it. But if it's characterized by these new self-behavior and traits, kindness, tenderness, mercy, you've got a chance. You've got a shot at this thing, man. Closing. What does God want you? What does God want you to take away from this awesome text. This is an amazing passage. Paul nailed it when he came up and read it and said this is one of the greatest passages that deals with the Christian life probably in the whole Bible. It really is. And I have not done it justice because I think that you could spend a lot of time on this text and, and go into each of these little things and facets and spend a lot of time on them. But what does he want you to take away from this text? Is he calling you to repentance and salvation in Christ alone? Because you realize, man, those first four, that's me. That's who I am. I am futile in mind. I don't have, I'm not connected to Christ. I don't, I don't love him or know him. I, I don't, I am very carnal. I am depraved. I am a very sensual, I'm pursuing these things in a variety of ways, impurity. Maybe, maybe what God is saying to you is that, look, I, I've, I've made some things known to you and I'm making my son known to you, Jesus Christ and his gospel. You turn away from your sin and believe in Jesus Christ. Trust in him. He'll rescue from all this stuff and he'll begin to change you, give you a new self, a new mind, a new heart. You'll see change. I still cross paths with people from high school and I tell them what I'm doing and they're like, get out of here. You're a pastor. People look at me and they're like, I cannot believe. In fact, you know who Lincoln Brewster is? He's a big time Christian musician and, uh, and I used to party with his brother Tristan and he lived on Carver. And, uh, and so me and his brother, you know, would come out of his bedroom. Me and Tristan would come out of Tristan's bedroom and the door would open, it would be like Cheech and Chong. All this bong smoke would come out, and we would like, we're here, right? And then Lincoln's room was right next door, and he'd have his door shut, and he'd be in there. He, this guy's playing the guitar like when he was an infant. He's really talented. And so I'd go in there all stoned, and, hey, man, that's really rad. Can you play Iron Maiden for me again? You know, whatever. And he wasn't saved, but he certainly wasn't living the way that, that Tristan and I were living. Well, later on, he got saved and all this stuff. And, and, uh, and he came to Big Valley when I was pastoring there. And he played, you know, and all that. And I saw him in the hallway, and I went up to him, and I said, <laughs> he's like, away, Peck, you know. Remember that scene in Willow? Out of the way, Peck. He, he, was, he was like, who are you? And I went, Awkward. I went, I'm Phil Baker. He's like, you're Phil Baker? The guy that used to get stoned with my brother Tristan and go out carousing and chasing girls and all that stuff? And I said, yeah, that's me. And he goes, what are you doing here? <laughs> and I said, I'm a pastor at this church. He goes, <laughs> and I said, I know. Can you believe it? And he says, no, I can't believe it. And God is good. That's what he said. And then he went out and did his thing. It was just a neat thing that happened. And that, 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 that is what people will think of you. 
You give yourself over to Christ. You submit to him. He changes you and all this stuff. And, and later people are like, man, you're not even the same guy. You're not even the same gal. Is he encouraging you to put to death some old self-behavior? Maybe you realize this morning that you're a believer and, man, I've been, I, yeah, man, I, I've, been, I've been flirting with that depravity thing, man. I've been, I've been doing this. I've been doing that. Maybe that's how he's encouraging you this morning and saying to you, you know, come back to me in that area of your life. Surrender it to me and I'll, I'll help you. Maybe he's encouraging you to treat others differently, right? To show them kindness, tenderness, and mercy. To forgive. To forgive someone as Christ has forgiven you. You do realize that that little bitterness and, and that little hanging on to that is going to eat you alive like cancer. Let it go. Let it go. I say, whatever God tells you to do, no matter how difficult and challenging it may be, submit yourself to him and do it. He will help you succeed. And, and his church, even RHC here, will walk alongside of you and support you. We will. We get it. The beauty of this church is there's no perfect people here. There's a bunch of jacked up people trying to live for Christ. May God bless our efforts, guide our battles, and grant us victory in Jesus Christ. And may he receive all the glory, praise, and honor. Amen.